Okay, all, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started here this evening, and we should complete our subject on the non-lordship theology this evening, and so next Wednesday we'll go back to our regular routine of just continuing through the New Testament, and where we are in that routine is we're on the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and the day of Pentecost is where we are historically in the Gospels, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to uh, just <laughs> going through the New Testament like that. I, I think there's a lot of profit in, in doing that for us personally and, and to equip us, so let, let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful for every opportunity to fellowship and around your word and with your people, and this evening is uh, no exception, and so we, we thank you for these good things, uh, Lord. Uh, we thank you that Marge can be with us tonight, and uh, <clears throat> we're, we're grateful for that. Lord, uh, we pray for Ann Borgert, and for Bill, and Frida, and, uh, and uh, Don Ziegler, Lord, that, that you intervene as, as you can, and we thank you for these, uh, these dear saints. And Lord, as we study this subject, of the right way to represent the salvation that your son brings. Lord, help us uh, Help us do that. Help us do that correctly. We don't want to misrepresent your promises, the work of the cross, or any of these things. So, Lord, we're needy. Uh, we need your help. Uh, and we ask, Lord, for that. And then even when we, uh, when we disagree with others at Give us a spirit of humility and patience and teach us to love all of your children and uh, as you love us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think, Alexis, there's a knob in that mixer back there labeled sanctuary and turn that down. I, the way this sounds, it, I think that knob is turned up and uh, it's... On, um, yes, that's much better. Okay. Okay, so we, um, giving some context, we got here because of 1 Peter 2.24. Who himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. That's what brought us here, was pointing out that this text tells us the purpose of Christ's death is to transform the way we live. Pretty clear, right? You don't have to be a genius to say what's the purpose of his death, that what? We might, having died to sin, live for righteousness. Okay, so that purpose is much more than just forgiveness. That's the point we're making. So often when people think about salvation, all they think about is forgiveness. And they equate salvation and forgiveness as virtually synonymous, same thing. And that's just not the case. Salvation, we started some passages last week, salvation is a much higher level concept and it includes all these other things. Okay? 
So when, when we, when I say Jesus saves, what I mean is all of these things. Right? And when we, and when we tell someone Christ offers to save you, He offers to do all of those things for you. And so what does that mean? That means in practice that works out to be if someone really is saved by Jesus Christ, there has to be fruit. (laughs) There There will be changes in that person's life. There will be fruit. And uh, that's the issue that is in contention here. There are some, and we refer to that as non-lordship theology, that say a person can be saved by Jesus and there be no outward evidence whatsoever for any length of time in that person's life. And I've been defending the view that that's incorrect And that's a wrong view of grace. Uh, And we have called the view that we understand effectual grace. Grace actually produces an effect in a person's life. That's what we mean by effectual grace. We'll look at some more examples of that. Uh, So that's what we're dealing with. And a verse like 1 Peter 2.24 is pointing us in that direction because it says Christ died on that cross that we might die to sin, meaning sin's power over us will be weakened. And the opposite of that is we might live for righteousness. I don't, yeah, we might live for righteousness. So are we clear on that? that? That verse is talking about a changed life. Every time I've read this verse in the past, I don't know why it bothers me that it says we might live for righteousness. It's like, well, we might, we might not. It's our choice. No, that's a purpose statement. (laughs) It's a purpose statement. Uh, Having died to sin for this purpose that we should live to righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, let's see what uh, some of the other translations say. Uh, no, that's that's a that's a that's a good a good trans. Yeah, they use that. Might yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, but I thought in uh, James one twenty, you know, like the wrath of men doesn't work for the righteousness of God. And that's what comes, I mean, last, the Sunday, maybe two Sundays ago, Mm. last Sunday, you know, there was the couple that comes, I don't know them really, and he said that. Um, It was Ray Ray Bromley. Right. Something about your wrath doesn't work on me because it doesn't produce. The text says the wrath of God, the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of of God. Thank you. Right, is what it says. That really doesn't relate to what we're talking about here. What relates to what we're talking about here much more is James chapter 2. If you know what is in James chapter 2, you, you know that faith without works is dead. Yes. Uh, so uh, that means a person who says he has faith, but he has no works, is not converted, is not a Christian. Okay. And uh, so... <clears throat> uh, 
let's review Romans, uh, Romans 6 one more time. Because Romans 5 and 6 specifically address this issue. Is a changed life always a result of real conversion? So Paul in Romans 5 made this gigantic statement, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And there's going to be an objection to that. Paul, you, you must be crazy what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Okay? You see, see that? What's happening? Paul is saying in Romans 5, no matter how great your sins are, grace is greater. That's, what, that's his whole argument in, in, in Romans 5. Okay? You know, and moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now that... I can't explain all that here, but Paul is saying, you see, people think the law was given to restrain sin. Paul says, no, no. <laughs> the law actually increases sin. Okay? But, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Okay? So, in Romans 6, Paul begins to deal with an objection to his doctrine of justification by faith alone. And they're saying, well, Paul, if, if you go and tell people that, they're just going to be encouraged to sin all the more. See, that's, that's the objection. Now, the non-lordship theology says, yeah, they can do that. They're saved, they're Christians, and they just can continue in sin the rest of their life, and they're still saved. No, this passage says that's not possible. Okay, So, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And then he asks this key question. How shall we who died to sin still live any longer in it? Well, what's the answer to the question? Is there an answer to, what's, what, is there an answer to that question? What's the answer? How shall we who died to sin still live any longer in it? The answer is, it can't be done. That's, that's the answer. It's not possible. That, yeah, you're, I'm just using different words, Matthew. I'm agreeing with what you're saying and worrying a little different. How shall we who died to sin still live, on, in, live any longer? It's not possible. You get it? That's Paul's God. point. Not in the eyes of God. Maybe in our eyes? No. 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 No, it's not possible. Well, See, that's Paul's point. It's not possible. And then he's going to explain why it's not possible. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Oh, why is that significant? Well, because of verses 5 and 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. See, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, this is what he says the objector doesn't know. Or do you not know? You see that? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in His death? And this is what they're, they're, they're leaving out. They're not knowing that our old man was crucified with Him. The body of sin might be done away with what? That we should no longer be slaves of sin. This they're leaving out. They're, they're leaving this out of the work of the cross. Okay. In other words, they've reduced the work of the cross to only forgiveness and not the body of sin being put to death. Paul is saying, when we're united to Christ, our body of sin is put to death. So we're no longer slaves of sin. That's why it is impossible to do verse 2. And that's why he's not spouting some heresy when he says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Non-lordship theology separates that. Separates the forgiveness from being crucified with Christ and the effect of it. Okay? I see a lot of... uh, Are you guys getting it? You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, I mean, there's other passages of Scripture that would show us the same thing, that you can't continue in sin that grace may abound, about the new birth and a whole number of other things. But I think this passage is the strongest because it is actually addressing the question whether someone can be a Christian and just continue to live in sin that grace may abound. It's addressing the specific issue of the controversy. This, this passage is. I, I think of excuses. You know, it's an excuse to continue in your old self. And, you know, how would you show the change in you that you said you received Christ in your heart and yet you keep doing your, your, your things that you did well, that, that you were not saved? That's an important subject. And, well, what, what changes then are there? Well, the first thing is, like we've always said, once you're converted, your whole relationship to sin changes. Whereas before, you would justify it, you would not call it sin and all of that. Whereas now when you're converted, you don't try to justify it anymore. You instead confess it as wrong and ask for help to change. You see, that, that's a transformation. That's a difference. You know, I think of guilt. You know, guilt comes right. Before you're converted, you're often you're not guilty about anything or you you know I haven't murdered anybody I haven't killed anybody I'm not guilty after you're converted you know you're guilty because you know it's God's law and standard so you see that's all new that's the type of change we're talking about sometimes you don't even have to so, do the deed you know it's in your mind well, you learn that because God says He looks on the heart and, yes. and not... So yes. those are all evidences that you are converted, you see. Yes. So, but I'm not spending a lot of time in, on these messages about um, those, those details. So th- those, are, those are important. So, um, all right, so that's the basic issue 
the answer to that, that there is no changed life, the answer is if you have justification, if you have Romans 5, you also have Romans 6. You can't separate Christ's work. Okay? If you have the forgiveness and justification, you also have being united with Christ and His death, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And now, that this isn't a might is the conclusion of this passage. Is down here in verse 14. Are you in 14? I'm in 614 now. The conclusion is right here of this of Paul's argument. For sin will not have dominion over you. Okay, the will is a better translation, but it's the same as shall. I'm sorry. Excuse In other me. words, let me finish. You see, you, you see, Doreen, there's no might there. This is a result. Sin will not have dominion over you. Why not? For you're not under law, what? But under grace. Effectual grace. So, effectual grace, that's right. You are under, this thing we call the grace of God is so powerful that it ensures sin is not going to have dominion over you. See? And th- see, this is a conclusion why not? Well, because of all these things he set up here. We've died with Christ. We've risen with Christ, the newness of life, and all of that. So that, that simply means if, you know, I'm sorry, you know, people get upset about this, but, you know, they have a child, say, that maybe, maybe the child made some confession of faith when they were 10 years old or something. And we're, and we're not against the confessions of faith when kids are 10 years old if they have some evidence in their heart. But, but they have a situation like that. And, you know, the kid turns 18, 19, 20, 21. And, you know, he's just a worldling. <laughs> okay? And he has no more interest in the gospel. He, and he, and he, and he, he's just living like an unconverted man. Okay? Year after year after year, he just lives like an unconverted man. Now, the non-lordship people are going to say he's saved because of what he did when he was 10 years old. He, he said he believed in Christ, so he has to be saved. No, he's not saved. <laughs> he never was saved, okay? We would say he never was saved. So, I mean, it's hard. It's hard on parents. You know, your kids become adults, and then you're going to find out. You're gonna, when your kids become adults, you're going to find out whether they believe in Christ or not. You hope, you hope they do. Oftentimes, many of them do, but not always. So, how do you address that person? Okay, how do you address that 30-year-old, when he, when, he, when he comes to this church, he's a 30-year-old, and he's just lived like the world all this whole time, and he's continuing to do that, we're not going to tell him you're saved. Because you did that 20, you know, 20 years ago. We're going to tell him, according to the Scripture, it looks like you're lost. And you, know, you need to call upon the Lord Jesus, and He'll save you. As opposed to say, well, no, you're still saved because you believed. You, uh, you see what I'm saying? Well, that can happen to you even when you're 30, can it? I mean, yes. You know, you're deep into the church and, you, and you're. When you did. You're Hold on. Right and, you know, Are you on page three? What's that? Number I'm, on no, I'm not on none of the pages right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Okay, put that microphone closer. It's on. Oh, 
I'm just wondering, you know, like I just became saved and and I want to live a good life, but say 10 years from now when I'm 80 (laughs) and I wanted, I fall deep into something, you know, and I I start living in a in a way that I shouldn't live. All right. What I'll, does, I'll that, what does that do to me? I'll show you. I'll show you what's going to happen if uh, if you do that. We'll, we'll we'll sidetrack here a little bit. I'm you, not planning on being a, a bad eighty year old. But <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Okay. No. No. We'll <laughs> let's we'll feel that feel that question here. Here's what's going to happen. Even if if Anita is 80 years old and she starts disobeying the Lord, here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm in Hebrews chapter 12. Okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Let me... uh, All right. Let's begin at verse uh, four. You have, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Okay, so we have to strive against sin. That's going to be our experience of striving against sin. But you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So when we start getting stubborn and beginning to disobey, we're going to get disciplined. The Lord is going to intervene just like a loving parent would intervene with a little child and discipline them, and turn them around, (laughs) you're going this way. That's exactly what the Lord is going to do. And that's another example of effectual grace. God doesn't just sit around and wait for us to obey. You as parents don't just sit around, I wonder if Johnny's going to obey today or not. Hmm, well, looks like he's not going to obey today. No. God doesn't sit around waiting for us to do the chores <laughs> or obey. He's actively involved in our lives. Amen. And this is one of those ways he's actively involved. If we start disobeying him, we're going to get paddled. And believe me, this works. If you're a Christian, <laughs> if you're converted, this is true. And and we know we I mean if you walk with God for a number of years you you learn this by experience, and so let's read let's read a little further. For if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Okay. So then, what do you say about the 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 young man who made the decision whatever at ten? And now he's 25, 30, 35 years ago, old. He, he, he shacks up with his, you know, he, with his girlfriend. And he lives like a, just a typical unbeliever. And he's done this for 10 years. And there's none of this taking place in his life. 
What does that tell you? He's not one of God's children. And th- this text even says that. Let's read, let's read a little further. So, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Well, there aren't any. A father chastens all of his sons. But, if you are without chastening, of which, what? All have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, and not sons. This is not hard to understand. God is involved in the lives of his people. So that's what's going to happen at any age, Anita, is this is the Lord. The, see, this is effectual grace. It's not God saying, well, I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to do that. Well, if you don't, well, you're still saved and forgiven. <laughs> no. God's involved in the lives of his children. And if a person lives a life that demonstrates none of this, that person... Now, there's two answers to that. We, we said this at the beginning. One group of people say, well, that person lost their salvation. Okay. In other words, they say, well, he was saved when he was 10 years old, but he lost his salvation. That's one explanation. The other explanation is this non-lordship explanation. He still is saved. Okay. Both of those are unbiblical explanations. The real explanation is he never was saved, and the fruits are showing us that he never had saving faith, which is what we, how, what we understand. And we call that effectual grace. And, and there's a lot of examples in Scripture of faith that doesn't save. That's the other thing. The non-lordship people have written that out of the New Testament. I mean, there's plenty of examples in the Old and New Testament where there's a profession, someone says they believe, but they really don't. They're not saved. Okay? And, and, and so that's the explanation. John, in, in 1 John, John says, they went out from us, but... If, but it's because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us and they showed that they were never of us. Okay? And he there was talking about doctrinal apostasy is what he was talking about in that letter. So he said, see, they were, they were with us, but they never really were. They were not really of us. And, and, and they were, do, they turned into doctrinal apostates. So, they weren't saved in the first place. So, um, may right. I make a uh, comment? Uh, sure. Uh, to you three ladies, and, and for all of us, personal experience of testimony with what you asked about being 80. No child of God is going to be able to sin when he falls, and I'm t- personal testimony, and be happy. Well, that, you, you, you that's correct. Okay. Oh, 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 that, uh, Go ahead. It supports, going. okay? And I hope you understand what I'm saying. Again, the times Dan's been there and he's had to rebuke me, okay? You cannot be happy. Period. The end. You know, to help you, Anita, and I mean that with all my heart. It's a beautiful thing to have a, a paper, you know, baptized, but, you know. Yeah. That's a good point. Let's let's do that. Um, 
Yeah. Pastor John, Pastor John talk, talked about yeah. it, and we we studied it for like a length of time. Yeah. And it was written by John Bunyan. Yeah. And in that narrow road is like it's for the birds. You know why? Why would I? Why? I mean, there's all this wide road that got all this stuff that I really don't need, and I, you know, why would I go to that on that road? And there's so many challenges. You know, you have friends that mean, you know, yeah. they mean well, so, and uh, whatever, you know. But it it reminds me of the Pilgrims. Progress. Yeah, these things are illustrated. All of this that we're talking Again, I mean, about look, is... Look at all those. Well, those are scenes from Pilgrim's Progress yeah, on the wall you. there. All of these things we're talking about are illustrated in Pilgrim's Progress. I, I want to go back to Matthew's comment, and this is another aspect of the answer to your question, Anita. Uh, yeah, God will chasten us. And oftentimes that chastening comes in the form of what Matthew said, you're miserable. We might be doing, you know, we might be pursuing this course of sin, but in the process of doing it, we're miserable. And Psalm, Psalm 32, probably, this Psalm is probably talking about when David was lying about his adultery with Bathsheba and having Uriah murdered. You know, he went on for like, I don't know, at least six months. But, uh, blessed is the man, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through all my groaning all the day long. Why? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. What's he talking about? God is disciplining him. Okay, Why? Because he's not acknowledging his sin. And how does you get out of this situation? <laughs> I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the experience. That's the Christian experience. We, we, we start sinning and rebelling. God begins to chasten us. We stiffen our necks more. He makes us more miserable. Finally, all right. You're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> I acknowledge my sin. Please forgive me. And what does he do? He forgives you. And that's what Matthew is describing. That's another one of those things of what's going to happen maybe when you're 80 and you get rebellious. Okay? I've always been a little rebellious. Only a little? Well, there's a lot of different ways to be rebellious. You can be raised Mormon and be very yes. rebellious by God's standards. I'm sorry. No, you're, no, these are good questions. I mean, what I've been teaching, all of this kind of stuff comes up when, when we teach that you can't simply continue to live like an unconverted person. These are the experiential questions that come up. And, and I've probably tried to avoid them more than I should have. But uh, I forget what do, do these passages help? Psalm 32, Hebrews 12, 
God's involved. Yeah, see, this is effectual grace, you see. Uh, whose hand? Well, that's a gracious hand of God, right? Day and night your hand was upon me. That's an act of God's favor to us. Just like you're favoring your child when you discipline him. You're loving your child when you discipline him. And so that's what we mean by effectual grace. It, um, Richard. <clears throat> there was a whole community uh, about 1530, the Munster Rebellion. Have you heard of that? Yes. And, and uh, I don't know that much about it except that it's labeled as an Anabaptist yes. Uh, revolt. Yes. And uh, they had that attitude that baptism, the heresy that it washes away their sins, and then they would be free from sin such that they could act out sin, you know, and, and uh, be licentious. Yeah. Yeah, some of them did. Yeah, there were there was like three different groups of Anabaptists, and their convictions were were quite different. But yeah, th these kind of problems have expressed themselves throughout the history of the church a lot of times. Yeah. Practically, though, you know, in our experience and in our lifetimes, we see it. And I think once you overcome your sin, it's repugnant to you. That's, you know, part right. of the uh, becoming, uh, uh, when you look at your sin, you can't, you can't stand it. Right. You know, and uh, so <laughs> it, it's, it's a practical matter if you've right. lived through it. And then yeah. it's difficult when you testify this to sinners uh, insofar as you have to change your behavior. You know, you're, you're not, you're not yeah. blessed by God to participate in sexual perversion, you know. Right. And you're not blessed by God to you take take license, you know, yeah. with with grace, yeah. you know. And when, and when we say we don't yeah, your behavior has to change, but the way we present it is Jesus Christ will enable you to change your behavior. You see, that's always yeah, your behavior has to change, but that's why he's the Savior. The salvation that he saves you with changes your behavior as well as forgives you. And we're, we're going to look at some passages like that tonight or maybe next week. We'll see. <laughs> okay, so um, I wanted to throw out an Old Testament passage as we're, we've been talking about effectual grace how God changes our behavior. He's involved in our lives. And Jeremiah 32 is a wonderful passage about the new covenant and how God saves his people in the new covenant. And he's going to save Israel and Gentiles. When Christ comes, he saves both Israel and the Gentiles. And this is a description of the salvation that he brings. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in my great wrath. He's talking about the ethnic Jews. He's going to save many of them. He's going to gather them and save them. I will bring them back to this place. I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. He is going to do a new covenant with them. 
That, that, this is covenant renewal. If you understand your Old Testament, God is saying, I'm going to regather them, right? What did they do with the Mosaic Covenant? What happened with the Mosaic Covenant? What did Israel do in regard to the Mosaic Covenant? They broke it. They broke it. And what did God do to them? He, he what? In the book of Hosea. He divorced her. He divorced Israel. They broke the covenant. Unrepentant, hard-hearted idolatry for generations. And so finally, he says, you're not my people. He divorced her. You, to use the analogy of an unfaithful spouse. He, so the, the, the Mosaic covenant's broken. God's divorced Israel. He says, you're not my people. But... <laughs> In the future, I'm going to gather you and I'm going to go into a new covenant. See that? I am going to, on my initiative, I'm going to call many of you Jews and I'm going to regather you and I'm going to renew, I'm going to make a new covenant. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going a little broader on this text, but that, this is complete covenant language that I shall, okay, they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's all new covenant, okay? And, and if we study more of the Old Testament, and that happens in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what's going, now look at what's going to happen in this new covenant. Look at this. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. They, he's going to deliver them from fearing idols, worshiping idols, He's going to give them a new heart which gets them on the right path such they fear Him forever. That's eternal life, isn't it? That's once saved, always saved, to use that popular terminology, right? I give them a new heart. They may fear forever. What? For the good. For the good of them and their children after them. Okay? See, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's the new covenant. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them. See, the difference between this covenant and the Mosaic covenant, this one will not be broken. This is an everlasting covenant. The Mosaic covenant was broken. They broke it. That's not going to happen with this covenant. Okay? Both parties are going to be faithful with this covenant. The Lord and the members of it. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. What? That I will not turn away from the, I will not turn away from doing them good. And look at the good. I will put my fear in their hearts. What? So they will not turn away or depart from me. Okay? There. That's effectual grace. Got it? That's what we're talking about. God is actively involved in the life of everyone He saves such that they're going to stay on the narrow way. They're going to get, we're going to get cuts and bruises <laughs> and all of these things. But, okay, so that, that's what we mean by effectual grace. That's the grace that comes through the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. 
in his blood. Okay? And this isn't the only place. It's in Ezekiel. So you, so you see what we're saying. This is New Testament salvation, New Covenant salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what that's a description of. New Covenant salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ who establishes a new covenant and saves many, saves many Jews and the Gentiles are brought into this same salvation. Gentiles are brought in here. But you, you see effectual grace, right? God ensures it by the work that he does. This is much more than... For, forgiveness is not even mentioned in here. In this one. Now, forgiveness is mentioned in, in Jeremiah 31, but here, forgiveness isn't even mentioned. It's, it's the other aspects of this salvation that are mentioned. See, we, we, we've had this problem of this reductionist definition of salvation. And we've had it for multiple generations in our churches. But this is good news. Because you're going to get to 80 and you're still going to be on the narrow way because this is the type of salvation that Jesus brings. Okay. We call that the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints. God preserves His people. Alright? Okay. <clears throat> okay, well this is good. <laughs> we're, we're kind of reviewing, but there, there's been a lot uh, to, to work through here. Okay, so now I think we are on uh, verse, uh, verse, we're on section 15 on page 8 of those notes. When we interact with this wrong theology, we've said, I've said, I don't like us dealing with the non-lordship theology by saying, well, you must you must receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I said, I don't like that and Lord addition. Okay? Because receiving Jesus as Savior alone is enough when you define salvation correctly. See, when you say you must receive Him as Savior and Lord, you're implying that just receiving Him as Savior is not enough. You, you see what I'm saying? That, that expression is confusing. Well, well, I received Jesus as Savior. Are you going to say, well, that's not good enough? No, you shouldn't say that <laughs> because we believe in faith alone, don't we? Absolutely. You see, that's the problem with with that that expression. Now, a lot of a, a lot a lot of us have used that addition in the past. The, the 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 churches that say you must receive him as Savior and Lord, they're on our side. Okay, they're combating the non-lordship theology. They're saying, "Well, wait a minute. You can't just ask Jesus for forgiveness." and not be willing to bow to His authority and continue living like the devil, you need to receive Him as Lord also. Okay, 
So those folks that are using that expression understand effectual grace in all of this. Right? I, I, there, you know, we're very much of one mind with our brothers and sisters who are using this phrase, believe in Him as Savior and Lord, or receive Him as Savior and Lord. We're very much of one mind with those folks. I'm just saying that expression has problems. And, and the non-lordship people accuse us of adding requirements in order to be saved. That's, they say, you guys are making obedience a requirement in order to get saved. That's what, they're, that's what they say. And they have a point. They have a point. They do. Okay? And so, when we're dealing with this non-lordship theology, I think that weakens our position when we say you must receive Him as Savior and Lord, meaning you must, be, you must be willing to bow to His authority. See, I wouldn't represent it that way. I would say you must receive Him as Savior, and receiving Him as Savior means I trust Him to forgive me and to transform my life. It's all by faith. I trust Him to save me from my guilt, and I trust Him to save me out of my slavery to sin. Romans 6. You see what I'm doing? Don't drop the, you must agree to obey, and say, are you desiring the salvation Jesus offers? Jesus offers to forgive you, and transform you and change your life. Is that the salvation you desire? And if, if the person says it sure is, I go, well, trust in Jesus to save you. And He will. Freely. By grace. On faith alone. I trust in Him not only to forgive me, but I trust in Him to set me free. And He makes that promise. If the Son of Man shall set you free, you'll be free indeed. You see? So, okay. Now we're on number 15. And I'm sorry, some of you have been digging around the nose trying to find out where I am and I haven't been on there. Now we're on number 15. So can we offer Christ to the unbeliever without using the and Lord part of the phrase, you must receive Him as Savior and Lord, and still accomplish what this popular phrase has intended to accomplish. That is, we want to screen out superficial conversions. Okay, we don't want to tell the guy that says, great, I know I'm forgiven, so I can continue my life of sexual immorality. And it's good to know that I'm forgiven. Uh, to use your illustration, Richard, right? We, we want to screen those people out. <laughs> right? So, can we offer Christ in a way that accomplishes what the end Lord phrase is attempted to do uh, uh, with, without uh, and correct the non-Lordship stuff? Yes, we certainly can. We can explain what Christ promises and urge people to trust Him for it. And so, here's six examples of how we can do this. 
Okay, we'll start with Matthew 8, 28 through 29 is, is a great example of this. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Here we go. Come to me. These are the words of the Savior himself. Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. All right? Now, what kind of rest is this? The next verse describes it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There. There it is. What does a yoke do? It holds you. And it what? Directs you. This is, this is salvation. Salvation means... Christ, put your yoke on my life and drive me in the right direction. You trust in Christ to save you, that is what He will do for you. I've driven my life into a ditch enough times. I've sinned in... Absolutely! Pedal to, uh, pedal to the metal! Christ says, come to me. Take my yoke, what? And learn from me. This is about so much more than just forgiveness. Absolutely. Now, He'll forgive you too, but that's not what the emphasis is. Learn from me, what? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, compare that to slavery to sin. Everybody's under somebody's yoke. You are either under the yoke of sin or you're under the yoke of the Savior. And that's why His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Because to be enslaved to sin is no easy yoke. Okay? There. Isn't that? So, now what? Believe and trust in Jesus to do this for you. I don't have to say, receive Jesus as Lord. Believe Him as Lord. Believe in Him to take control of your life. Trust Him. Come to Him. That's what He says. Come to Me. Come to Him for this. And He will save you. Trust in Him for this, and He will save you. Okay? Isn't that wonderful? Amen. All right. This, I, I've got six examples of how to do it. All right? Six examples. Um, we're one. What's that? We're going to get through one. No, we're going to number two right now. Second one right now. <laughs> uh, this is another great one. John 8... Um, John eight twelve, yeah. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? I'm the light of the world. 
you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. And obviously, walking in darkness is walking in sin and falsehood and everything else. But if you follow him, you'll have the light of life. Very simple, wonderful invitation. Is this what you want? You want the light of life? You can have it. Follow Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Follow him. And he becomes the light of life. So you don't continue living in darkness like you're living. Okay? Sadly, the Pharisees completely couldn't care less about the invitation. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness to yourself, your witness is not true. And um, so there, there's a second simple example. Another example of John 7.37 uh, why is that not in here? Oh, yeah, it is. John 7.37. <clears throat> On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. So there. What a wonderful invitation. Now, I mean, if you have an unbeliever, you're probably going to have to explain more things along with this. But, but look at that invitation. It's open to anyone who thirsts. Come to him and drink. It, it, it isn't he who believes in me as Savior and Lord. <laughs> okay, it isn't that. You don't, have, you don't have to add to that. It's faith alone, isn't it? He who believes in me. What's going to happen? As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You think that means transformation? You better believe it. That means a new life. And, and, and what does he, oh, we don't have time, what does he mean as the Scripture has said? It's all the water promises in the Old Testament. The, the, the water metaphor and illustrations in the Old Testament. I will sprinkle clean water on them and you shall be clean. And I will have streams in the desert. All of those water illustrations of when Messiah comes, the people are going to spring up and worship Yahweh. And that's the result of the water promises. And, and in the Old Testament even says, I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants. That's what Jesus is referring to, is all the water topology of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. And how do you partake of that new life? By trusting in Jesus. He gives you a new life. Okay? The Holy Spirit is part. Part of that salvation is the Holy Spirit. Every believer has, has the Holy Spirit. Uh, <clears throat> you can also say it this way. Ephesians 5. This is beautiful. Ephesians 5, uh, 
this this is really beautiful. Five verse twenty six. Uh, let's begin reading verse twenty five. But we're ta- here. Here's a description of the salvation that Christ brings and offers. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, this is just like the Peter text. The purpose of his death is transformation. Notice it. He gave himself for her. That's the cross, correct? That's the death of Christ. Why did he die for her? that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water, with the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That is a total transformation of a human being from a Sinner in Adam lost (laughs) to a sinner married to Jesus Christ. And what is He going to do? He's going to make her beautiful. He's going to make her beautiful and she is going to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Rather that she's going to be holy and without blemish when He's done. Isn't that Beautiful. That's salvation. That's the salvation that Christ brings. So you offer that. You say, Jesus is the one who will do that for you. You trust in Him to save you. This is what it looks like. It's more than this. It's forgiveness. It's justification. But it's nothing less than this. I mean, that, that, this is it's just beautiful. It's put in the context of, of Christ loving us as His bride and going to the cross and dying so that He can marry the ugly girls and make them beautiful. Right? I mean... He didn't enter into this marriage relationship with us because he was captivated by our beauty. We were sinners. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm preaching now. I should be not doing that. This is, you see, see, this is salvation. It's wonderful. And uh, so, I mean, if you got an unbeliever like, oh man, I just wanted a pardon in my pocket so I could sin without being afraid to go to hell. No. No. The salvation that Christ offers you is so much better than that. And it isn't that. His salvation isn't to give you a pardon in the pocket so you can go out and keep committing spiritual adultery by worshiping something other than the true God. Alright? That's not His pardon. His his pardon isn't giving you license to continue to worship other things. His pardon is to bring you into a right relationship with God and you'll become a worshiper of God. Okay? So... It reminds me of the agave. Absolutely. And it's in 1 Corinthians. 
Yeah. It's right here. Christ loved the church. That there, right there. Yeah. So what I'm showing you, all I'm saying is, does this affect how we preach the gospel? Absolutely. Because we've got to stop preaching the gospel as if the Savior is just forgiveness only. And I got my pardon in my pocket and I'm good to go. I mean, that's the negative. The other thing is, this is a glorious, wonderful message. I mean, and, and, and you know, you're hoeing Satan's row. He doesn't love you. Your sin doesn't love you. I've said that from the pulpit so many times. Christ loves you, but your sin will never love you back. You know, you're, you're loving your sin, but it won't love you back. Ultimately, your sin will never love you back. And this is a Savior who loves you. And this is what he does for those people that he saves. Yeah, you have to emphasize forgiveness, but you need to add this to that. Just add these things to forgiveness. And, and so, this is just a wonderful passage here. Um, <clears throat> uh, number five, we'll get, maybe we'll get through all six of these, uh, showing you examples here. Uh, it's, I'm looking for, what am I looking for? Ephesians, yeah. I'm on D. I'm on D on page 9. This is a wonderful text if you include verse 10. <laughs> for by grace you have been saved through faith and believe in Jesus Lord. No, <laughs> you don't need to add it. I'm telling you, you don't need to add it. <laughs> We believe in faith alone. Let's not give our theological um, folks that we have a theological controversy. Let's not give them that. You guys are preaching works. No, no, we're preaching faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, amen. Our salvation here, which includes forgiveness and everything else, by the way, that salvation is not of works of merit. It's not based on meritorious works that we do and present to God and say, God, save me on the basis of my meritorious work. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But what about works? It's not of our works that he saved us. For what? We are his workmanship. Now that illustration, we've done this, but we'll do it again. That illustration there is, think of an artist who is a sculptor. And he, his workmanship is when he fashions the statue. That statue is his workmanship. Okay, when I, when I, as an engineer, uh, design a complicated circuit, that design is what? My workmanship. That's, that's the object that I have created. I have worked to create that object. That's what's going on here. So, it's not our works that save us. It's Jesus' workmanship. We are His workmanship. So, so, what does that mean? That means He puts His hands on us. Uh, right? We are His work. He put, we are His workmanship, what? 
created. Salvation is a new creation. <laughs> we are created, what? In Christ Jesus, what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all part of the plan. The good works are part of the plan of why God saved you. That's effectual grace, isn't it? Grace that takes a lump of clay and turns it into something beautiful. That's what God is doing in our lives by grace. Not because we've given Him meritorious works to do it. He's done it to, for us completely free. See that? So, um, oh, I skipped over. I skipped over um, John 8.36. We can go a little bit old. All of you are old enough. Oh, you have young kids, but... <laughs> We'll go a few more minutes. I, I gotta finish this. First Corinthians. Uh, we, we got just a couple passages to go. John eight thirty six. All right. We'll go down here. Anyway, that that we started at eight twelve, but a little bit further down in John eight thirty six, we get this. Um, okay, he's. In an, in an argument with the Pharisees, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Let me, let me back up here, actually. Yeah. Let's back up so you can get this. this is, and Jesus said to those Jews, those uh, who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and what's going to happen? And the truth shall make you free. Okay? Well, what kind of freedom is he talking about? They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Ah, they're talking about political freedom, right? We've, ne we've never been in bondage. They're talking about political freedom. The Jews are. What do you mean you shall be made free? We've never been in bondage to anyone. Political freedom. How can you say you will be made free? We haven't been in bondage to anybody. How can you say you should be made free? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Ah, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. That's the kind of freedom Jesus is talking about. Commit sin, that's a present, active, continuing lifestyle. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. That's covenant language there. Being in the house, the slave's going to be kicked out of the house. Different subject. But the slave, does, the Jews are not going to retain their privileged position unless they repent and believe. We're transitioning from old Mosaic covenant to new covenant. That's what's going on in this discussion. They were privileged, even ethnically privileged. That's coming to an end unless they receive Jesus as the Messiah. So anyways, so 
Um, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin, what? Is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in a house forever, but a son abides. And here's the promise. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from what? Slavery to sin. That's Romans 6. You realize when Jesus said this, He knew He had to go on the cross to accomplish that? Correct? How how does this happen? How is it that the Son of Man can set the slave to sin free? Well, Paul explained it to us. By being crucified on the cross and us with Him is how He does that. And that's exactly what Romans 6 is talking about. Freedom from what? Slavery to sin. Let that sink in. Those two things are connected. I'm trying to understand it, that I can share it to the ones that I love. My yeah, hold that for a minute. Or can you hold that? Because I want to finish these six things. And, 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 then, and then we can do it. So, um, all right, so now I'm on E on page 9. So, I've gone through these six examples, and I haven't used the you must receive Christ as Savior and Lord in any of those six invitations. Not at all. Also, what I've done is actually better because I've explained what Jesus offers to the lost a moral transformation, and he offers it freely by offering to be our Savior. He will work on me. He will fix me. That's much better than telling the lost he must receive Jesus as Lord and bow down to him. I don't have any power to bow down to him. I need him to help me do that. (laughs) You see? So, you can see why the free grace people charge us teaching works for acceptance. Much better, go and tell the lost, man, you are broken big time, but Jesus offers to fix you. You're broken, But Jesus offers to fix you. Go, trust in Him to get fixed. You can do. You can say it. That's it. Can be that simple. You bet. We're all broken, and what we're broken by is our sin. You know. But you can. Yeah, we're broken. Sin has broken us. Our sin. Don't say our sin has broken us. We're not victims. Our sin has broken us and is destroying us. But Jesus can fix us and forgive us. Just put them both in there. He will forgive us and He will fix us. That's the kind of Savior He is. And then you can quote some of these promises. Okay? There. We don't really need to do F. Okay. I think 
we're about done. We can take a question or two, Thelma. Go ahead. How much time do you give How much time do you give a person that said, I believe there is a God, but you you said you're aware that there is a God that okay. controls everything, but do you put your trust, do you trust, um, do you believe in God? And I, my family are smarter than me. And they'd say, I do not want a biased opinion from the leaders of your church. I can study it myself and make sense out of you. the book that, the Bible, you've given us the Bible, and it's the Word of God, and I believe in it and what it says, but does it show in their works and how much time has God given them to show there is a fruit in their belief? Well, um, I think I don't want to set the standard too high or too low, but... It's a standard of God. Uh, well, know. I know, but I mean, we're not infallible in our reading of Scripture and understanding these kinds of things. Um, if a person is an adult, okay, and... Um, <clears throat> If they're believing in a saving way, I think it doesn't take that long for the fruit to show. Because they, you got, they have to first know that they're lost. And the person you're describing to me sounds like they don't have any real conviction of sin yet. They're like, they're the judge and the evaluator. Should I believe in Jesus or not and all of this? Well, we all start out that way. We're certainly not saved when we're thinking that way because we're acting like, well... We're God. I, well, we're acting like I'm not ready. I, God could cast me into hell. I'm lost. I'm afraid. But every time, you know, the people that I, you know, they, they said, I believe in God. But then when I start talking about I am, okay. the book, they'd say... Oh, I have a Bible. I said, do you use it for right. decoration? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you well, can have okay. a Bible and not open it. And, and so I would say, um, how many books are in the Bible? Okay, they, well, let, can, let me stop. I, I want to interact with you, but, but stop right there. Okay. When they say they believe in God, my next question would be, my response would be, well, you can't believe in God if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. So what do you, tell me what you believe about Jesus. That would be my immediate response. person says, I believe in God. Okay, well, you can't believe in the true God without believing in Jesus Christ. He reveals the true God. What do you believe about Jesus? I ask him that. That, that would be, that he, would be would my say, next question. I mean, I'm sorry. They would say, he's my savior. And is that enough? Okay, then, then stop. Okay, what do you mean that he's your savior? Say he died on the cross. Why? What does that mean? To save me. Why? 
What does that mean? See, that's we're going to get right into tonight's subject. What they're going to say when you press them is, well, excuse me. Okay, okay. I'm still listening. What else does he do? That right there, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. He's my Savior. All that means to him is he forgives my sins. It doesn't mean all of this. And you can tell him, hey, but if, they he, would say, if he hasn't... What do you consider as a sin? You know, is a sin like owning all kinds of stuff around, you know... Sin is violating God's law. Okay. No, I mean, I, that's how you would do it. Sin is violating God's law. Do you know God's law? Then turn it around and ask them. Do you know God's law? They do. I mean, uh, but they don't practice well, what they uh, understand, yeah. like, you know, the commandments, which can be, you know, still applicable, you know. I mean, physic- um, the physical aspect of it and the spiritual aspect of, like, killing somebody. Okay, sure. I, I know that. And uh, they'd say, I know I'm not supposed to, like, even think about, like, right. stabbing you because okay. you're getting on my nerves. Yeah, but, you know, this is where I would take them, too. I would take them like, hey, you know, what, what you, your view of the law, now this is where we go. You see, you, this is where you go. You see, you're just thinking about God's law as a bunch of don'ts. You don't understand God's law. The most important commandments aren't a bunch of don'ts. They're positives. You shall love the Lord your God. What? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, anytime you don't do that, you're sinning. Right? And you need to be forgiven, and God's going to judge you according to that standard. That's His standard of judgment. But what if you look at a woman's wife and you are already thinking these things? Well, yeah, that's a sin. That's a sin, but okay, stop it. Don't put a blinder on or something. Yeah, but the, the bigger sins or have to do with our relationship with God. We, we, we love everyone else and we could care less about God. We care, we care about all of these rights. What about God's rights? Doesn't He have a right to be worshipped? You see, we're so man-centered. You know, they're not worshipping God. Romans 1, they won't say thank you to God. I, you know, I, I think of um, Professor Kevin, you know, Zuber. Sure. We, you know, we, it was not a perfect marriage between Dean and I. I mean, this is something. There are no perfect marriages. No. Okay, I, there's I, only I, perfect I, marriage I, with him. Okay, so, you know. Mine was and, no exception to that rule. And, <laughs> he'd say, you know, we have problems. And I said, yeah, we do, don't we? And <laughs> we don't go to church. Okay, so. Anyway, to make the story short, in our tree of life, who is the top? Who is the top of this? I don't know what you mean by the, a tree or tree of a life. A tree or apex of anything, mountain or the tree. And this was our um, counseling. Who is on the top in your life? Right. Who? 
Well, God. God, okay. Um, but who is in the bottom? Me. Yeah, no. Okay, who's in the bottom? God. He's at the top and the bottom. Yes, and anything in between, okay. you can put yourself first, or the bank, or what you, the car that you drive, whatever, your husband, your wife, your children, but guess what? We even sing how firm a foundation, and our foundation is. Yeah, you're talking like a believer now, you know, which you are. Right. I've always been so, a believer so where in God. Is it, how does this relate to... It, I'm just saying, you know, that in a tree of life... Okay, I'm going to stop sorry. you there because we're going back. If you could hang on, you see, they're going to say, well, he's my savior. Well, I believe in God. And then you're going to say, well, you can't believe in God without believing in Jesus Christ. What do you think about Jesus? You know, don't give them all the answers. Ask them the questions, but... What do you think about Jesus? Who is he? And, and they're not going to believe in Jesus unless they know who he really is. You know, if they think he's a prophet or something less than that. And then if you say, well, he's my savior, don't accept that answer. Ask them to, what does that mean to you that he's your savior? And I will bet you nine times out of ten with people like that you're describing, they're going to come back and say, well, he forgives me. And that's all they're going to say. And I'm telling you, you got him right there. You say, well, now, if he's your Savior that's forgiven you, that also means he's done all these other things, and I don't see any of them in your life. So I don't think he's your Savior. I don't see Hebrews chapter 12. Where's, where's Hebrews 12? Where's Jeremiah 32? I don't see any of this. And you just tell this person, when Jesus saves someone, he forgives you, and he does all these other things. I don't think you're saved. That's correct. And based on the authority of the Word. Because, say, let me show you, whoever this person is, let me show you from Scripture what it looks like to be saved. It looks like all of these things we've been looking at, and I don't see any of that in your life. So I don't think you really asked Jesus to save you. You asked him to forgive you because maybe you're afraid of going to hell, but that's not what salvation's about. So you've got to first be saved from sin, then you'll be saved from going to hell. Get it? First you've got to be saved from sin, then you'll be saved from going to hell. But they're defining salvation from sin being nothing other than guilt. Does that help? Okay. <laughs> okay. We gotta stop. It's it's eight thirty. I'm sorry. I've I've been I've been trying to go too fast and too aggressive. Yeah, this has not been an easy you know, this has not been an easy subject because we're dealing with two different views of definition of salvation and and all of these things. So don't don't get discouraged. This is this has been a challenging subject. There's a lot of dimensions to it. Yeah, and we run into almost countless people like that. Okay, we're gonna let's pray and and we'll be done. Oh, Father, uh, our best is is nothing compared to to you and your best. And we thank you that 
We are your workmanship, Lord. And we thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you father us and that you will chasten us and all of these things, Lord. Uh, so to the extent that, that we've gotten these things right, we thank you. To the extent that we have things wrong, Lord, help us um, be more in the right and always help us to turn back to your word and you and, and give us a gracious, uh, gracious, humble attitude. As We thank you for that yoke, Lord Jesus, and uh, we thank you for that yoke. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.